This is Orson Welles on the Air, featuring the old-time radio performances of the legendary Orson Welles. Welcome back to Orson Welles on the Air. Thanks for joining me once again. We'll hear from the Mercury Summer Theater this time, a short series, 15 episodes, aired from June to September of 1946. Our story today is from July 26th, 1946. It's titled, The Moat Farm Murder. Good evening, this is Orson Welles, your producer of a special series of broadcasts presented by the makers of Tab's Blue Ribbon, the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air. Tonight, and every Friday night, Pabst Blue Ribbon presents you with a front row seat in America's favorite summer theater. And now, here is America's most famous producer, writer, director, Orson Welles. You might say that the following half hour on Shivers, arranged for your delectation by Mr. Norman Corwin, is a radio documentary. Here is an authentic word-for-word confession of a murder committed by a middle-aged Englishman named Dougal some 41 years ago. Except for occasional dialogue indicated in the confession itself, we're bringing you over these microphones exactly what the killer told the British police, exactly as it came out of his own tortured mind and in his very own words. So that this special broadcast may move without interruption, our sponsors have kindly omitted their commercial message at the time, uh, which usually comes in the middle break. So right now, before we get started, let's pause for a few seconds to do homage to a very patient and long-suffering gentleman, your dealer of blended, blended... Yes? Your Pabst Blue Ribbon dealer deserves sympathy these days of the beer shortage. For after all, it's not much fun for him to have to tell you thirsty folks that he can't let you have all the Pabst Blue Ribbon you'd like. So, please remember two things. First, remember he's doing his very best, as are we, to get you your share of Pabst Blue Ribbon. And second, remember that every single bottle you do get will be, as always... The happy blending of never less than 33 fine brews. Yes, as always, every taste is just the way you want it. Not too heavy, not too light, with that real beer flavor coming through. As always, it's blended splendid. Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now, the Mercury brings you Orson Welles in his own production of Norman Corwin's The Moat Farm Murder. And now, if the stenographer is ready, we will proceed with Mr. Google's confession from where he left off in our last session. Go ahead, Mr. Google. Well, I did not find Miss Holland as generous as I expected. As I didn't have very much money, I suggested we should buy a farm. I think we looked at about a dozen farms altogether, but none of them suited me. So I came across the Moat House farm. It was just the place I wanted. When she complained of its loneliness, I said that was its charm. Because we should be able to live there together away from any inquisitive strangers. Everything went all right up at the time that the farm was purchased, and I certainly did intend that the deed should be made out in my name, but to this Miss Holland would not consent. Now, would she pay the deposit in my name, and therefore all the visions I'd had of getting hold of the farm, turning her out and selling it, melted away. Finding she was so tight-fisted, I began to think of various schemes to put her out of the way. But I, I thought I'd wait a little bit to see if she altered I think she was naturally very mean. Strange to find a woman so mean, because otherwise she was not so bad. She'd often try when I was miserable or down in the dumps, cheer me up by playing or singing to me. 
I think she was rather snappy at times, and if I didn't quite agree with everything she said, she'd bounce out of the room, and then perhaps towards the evening she'd get over her temper, and she'd come downstairs and plead for... Herbert. What is it? I'm sorry about losing my temper. Oh? Are you now? I'm afraid I was sharper than I need have been. Do you forgive me? Why, yes, Cecile. Just so long as you realize that I was mad I suppose you were, Herbert. Well, then, let's forget it. It's only my state of nerves, really. It makes me give way to such temper. I certainly thought she had more money than she did. And although we were such great friends, it was not without the greatest trouble that I got to know all about her financial position. I made up my mind at last to put her out of the way. I used to sit and think about it for hours because although I'd done a lot of things during my life, I, I couldn't quite make up my mind to go so far as to murder her. But when we actually moved into the farm, I definitely decided what I should do. I thought that a very good place to bury her would be the ditch. That was why the very first week we were at the farm, I gave orders for it to be filled in. Though she knew nothing about it, she came out of the house and stood at the side of the ditch whilst I and Pilgrim, the laborer, was discussing the best way to fill it up. The elder priest stood by the side. I could see her there now, holding one of the boughs and arguing about the ditch being filled in until proper arrangements had been made for draining it another way. Why are you having him dig there, Herbert? Oh, I don't think you know what you're about. Cecil, you, my dear, I know very well what I'm doing. But I have a right to my opinion. More than a right to discuss what's being done on this farm. But this laborer here knows more about it than you do. I prefer that we leave him out of this. Pilgrim? Pilgrim? Yes, ma'am. How do you think this should be done? Well, ma'am, I think the proper way to do the job is to make the new job drain first and then fill in the ditch. There. You see, Herbert? I see nothing of the sort. Now, I'd made up my mind what I was going to do with her, so it didn't suit my purpose to accept his advice. I therefore insisted on the work being commenced at once, so I did not want the filling in completed. I don't think I should have done it. Had I not wanted money very badly. I made one final appeal to Miss Holland to let me have some money, but she refused. She was so mean that she would not trust me with even the wages to pay the farm in. And at last I was so pushed in a corner that I determined to finish the matter that week. Of course, I know all about firearms. When the wind was in a certain direction, I fired the revolver off several times in the coach house in order to see if one could hear it while they were in the back of the house. I was very glad to find that nobody heard any report. I placed the revolver fully loaded and some cartridges on a shelf in the coach house. Ready for me. When I wanted it. It was there seven or eight days. Before I finally used it. Just a moment, Mr. Dougal. What about the testimony of the servant girl, Blackwell, that you made advances to her late one night? You know, what that servant girl says about me going to a door is... Although I think she exaggerates a little... Miss Holland and I had quite a row about it. She accused me of a lot of things. Of course, I declared that the servant's story was a lie from top to bottom, but she stuck up for the girl. She made herself so ill that she cried very nearly the old of one day. On Friday morning, we made it up. 
We had breakfast together on Friday morning. Got around it by lunchtime. We made up our quarrel and she'd forgiven me. And that was why we thought of going for a drive. It was a beautiful night. So we let the horse... I think it was about quarter past eight when we got back to the farm. When I'd taken the horse out, I thought she'd go in the house. But instead of that, she made some remark about it being a beautiful moonlit night. I pushed the trap into the coach house by the side of the trap, reached down the revolver, and as Miss Holland stood just near the door, looking at the moon, I shot her. She dropped just like a log. Men, I pulled her into the coach house. If I live to be a thousand years old, I shall never forget the feeling as I caught hold of both her hands and drew her along until I got her into the coach house. All kinds of things came into my mind and my heart seemed almost to stand still as I put my hand inside her dress to feel if her heart was beating. Of course, I knew that she was dead. Yet I don't know what made me do it, but I knelt down on one knee and pulled her head and asked her to speak if she could. Cecily! Cecile! Speak to me, Cecily! Do you see me? Cecily! I didn't think this was much use, but... Why I did it, I can't tell even now, but I thought for a moment she might come too. Because there was no blood about. I wasn't quite certain where the bullet had struck her. Great beads of perspiration began to run down my back for I had a most peculiar sensation. As if someone was following me. I thought the doors of the coach house had opened. And she was walking out after me. I could almost feel her touch me. And as true as there's a God in heaven, I was ready to drop. I must have stood there some seconds. Then I put my hand into my pocket and drew out the revolver and turned round and looked I could not quite get out of my mind. I'd get rid of the feeling that someone or something besides myself Stood between me and the coach house. I still had an impression that someone had come towards me. <laughs> so I leveled up the revolver and stood there with it in my hand. I don't think I could have uttered a word to have saved my life. My tongue was like a great ball of fire and quite hurt myself. I did try to get some saliva to moisten my mouth, my parched tongue. Then I remembered how silly it was. Of course, there was no one. I put the revolver back. Walked back into the house. Oh, why, but I thought it might be all a mistake. Perhaps after all, bullet hadn't struck her. She'd only fainted. She might come too if I gave her some brandy. So I caught hold of the decanter and walked across with it in my hand to the coach house. But... I couldn't make up my mind for a second or two to go. I called out, Cecily! 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 
and then I thought what a fool I was. I went into the coach house, but it was dark. All dark. I pushed the door further open so some of the light from the moon had come in. And she was in exactly the same position as I'd left her, so I knelt down and I poured some of the brandy over her face, thinking maybe it might revive her. But really, I knew this was impossible because she was dead. I knew she was dead. I tried to sit her up, but she fell back. And I knew it was all over then. Of course, I'd arranged everything. I'd mapped out everything days before I was going to bury her. I knew just where I sat down. Began thinking over new schemes. Every few minutes, I kept touching her and feeling her pulse and speaking to her. And then I made up my mind that it'd be best not to put her in the ditch, but to take her away and bury her somewhere else. So I took off her hat and her veil and her jacket she was wearing. I picked her up in my arms and walked down by the side of the little moat. Her head was leaning over my shoulder. And I carried her along. I wish there was a great big furnace there that I could put her in and watch her burn. I thought of cutting her up into pieces and putting her into the moat. Then I thought of the time to take me. I was afraid of being interrupted. Somehow I wanted to bury her out of sight, and yet I wanted to keep her by the side of me. So I went back to the field, and I picked her up again and carried her over to one of the haystacks. I found then that she was getting all cold and stiff, for there was a strong breeze blowing throughout a cold night. It was horrible to see her lying on the ground. Before I picked her up the last time, I wish she was alive again, because... Well, then I thought, after all, she hadn't done me any harm. So I knelt down and... I wouldn't believe this. I kissed her once or twice. All the good times we had. Times that seemed to come. And I remembered once or twice when I'd been sick. and She'd nursed me and tried to get me well. And I thought after all... What a bit hard to do her in. Then I began to think what had happened to me if she was found. I thought I'd hide her in the haystack for a few days, but finally I made up my mind that I'd get rid of her once and for all. I went to get the fork and carried some straw and laid it down at the bottom of the ditch. Then I began to think of the way she'd nagged me and the difficulty I'd had getting money from her. So I caught hold of her hand and pulled the ring off her finger. Under this ring. It had been given to her by, well, I guess the only man she ever really loved. After to tell me that she did. She said that while her aunt kept a ladies' school at Liverpool, she used to help her in the management. Why, so? I grew very fond of a brother of one of the pupils, a midshipman who had returned home from a voyage. He had some relatives in the West Indies. He went out there shortly afterwards and took some kind of post. He used to write me letters. And just when everything looked bright, he was dropped, sitting at a yacht, and his body was not recovered for some days. When it was found, the ring that he wore on his finger was taken off, sent home to his parents, who gave it to me. Well, I took that ring off her finger. And just as I did so, a stray moonbeam came through one of the cracks of the door and played all about her face. It made me quite shudder. Once I put my hand down and caught hold of the gold cross that was round her neck and wrenched it off, snapping the chain on which it used to 
I turned her over, put my hand in her pocket, and took out her purse. I don't think I knew what I was doing then. I picked her up in my arms, and just as you'd carry a baby, I, I carried her out of the coach house and laid her on the straw. One minute I wanted to kiss her, and the next minute I wanted to pitch a lot of mold over her. But at last I made up my mind that I'd bury her. Bury her and get her out of sight. I thought perhaps unless I covered her over the fowls and scratch away the straw so I got me some brambles and twigs and places that wouldn't stretch them over the body. I picked up the fork and put a thin layer of earth over the top of the brambles and straw. And then I went back into the house. Went to bed. I couldn't sleep. I got up and walked around the farm and down to the road back again. I couldn't keep my eyes off the ditch. I'm sure I aged that night. Twenty years. I never closed my eyes the whole night long, and I could not keep still or rest for even a quarter of an hour. I tried to read. I tried to write. I tried to sleep. It was all in vain. Not one single moment's peace did I have, and I'm sure that if I went once to that ditch, I went plenty times. First thing I did when I got to the house was to open Miss Allen's desk and go through a lot of her papers in order to find out, if possible, how much money she had. She kept her accounts very neatly, but I was very disappointed when I found out she was not worth more than six or seven thousand pounds. I thought perhaps Miss Holland had some more cash concealable. I turned over her trunks and I turned over her boxes, but I could not find any, any cash. And I certainly did feel somewhat disappointed. I used to have terrible dreams at night. The only about the house, I used to fancy I could hear Miss Holland's voice. <laughs> I think if I went once to look at that ditch, I went a hundred times a day. I'm sure if anyone had watched me, they would have gone suspicious and thought that and thought there must be something under that ditch. I come now to a terrible part of my life because, however clever one may be, however well one's plans have been carried out, there's always a suspicion lurking at the back of your head that you may have made one little blunder to lead to the truth coming out. As sure as I'm alive on this earth, no one tried harder than I did to banish entirely from my mind all recollections of that terrible night, but I found it was Physically impossible. It did not matter where I was or who was with me. The moment there was a lull in the conversation, the moment my attention was taken from anything, away back to the farm went my thoughts. As sure as I stand here, I can swear that I've gone into that coach house hundreds of times, expecting to see her lying on her back as I dragged her in there. But nothing would make me believe this. Till I'd gone in. And think for myself. I did this two or three times a day sometimes. And all the time I knew I'd buried her in the ditch and she was still there. I tried to reason with myself. Time out of number. But it was no good. I had to go into that coach house. And see for myself. That she was not.
Sometimes when I've been walking along or sitting in a railway carriage, I've closed my eyes and tried to make myself believe that it was all a dream. That Miss Holland wasn't dead. That was some foolish thought that I got into my mind. I've got up and and said to myself, you're not a whatever else you may be. Then I sat down again. And I felt much better. And more satisfied. But unfortunately, this didn't last very long. A few minutes later, my mind traveled back to May 19th. And I could see myself loading the revolver in the morning, putting it on the shelf, taking the pony out of the trap, standing on the step, and shooting her. Why, three years after she had been dead, I could close my eyes and still feel that I had her in my arm. Yes, sir. I could still feel her head hanging over my shoulder. I could still see her face as I laid her in the ditch. One time I could sleep. Perhaps for a few hours, I'd forget all about the most farm. As time went out, I found it impossible to get a night's rest. Then I took to walking in my sleep. And I thought I should have gone mad. When I found... I was a somnambulist. I remember one night I returned from London... After having a good look around, I went to bed. I think about 11 o'clock. I remember quite well taking off my clothes, getting into bed. Just before daybreak, I suddenly came to myself. And I found... I found I was standing by the side of the ditch. And that a, a spade... A spade... was in my hand. I was in my nightshirt. I got out of the bedroom, walked down the stairs, opened the door crossed over the moat bridge, gone into the coach house, and then gone to the grave with a spade in my hand. I think I must have been standing there a long time because it was very cold. My nightshirt was wet with dew. I shook from head to foot. My teeth chattered. I was aching in every limb when I woke up. So I pitched the spade back into the coach house. And I went back to bed. There I lay awake. Count me out. I was really afraid of myself. I thought that one of these mornings the laborers would come in and find me standing there. I thought of all kinds of methods to prevent myself from being found there. The only way that I could prevent myself walking out of the ditch in my sleep was locking the gate at the entrance of the boat bridge. I put a bit of chain around it. Before I went to bed, I used to see to it that it was padlocked. All this did not prevent my walking in my sleep, but it stopped me going out to the ditch. Because I used to go right up to the gate. As it was locked, I feel certain I used to turn around and go back to bed. 
I know I did this because one day the gate was painted white. And when I woke up in the morning, I found my hands covered in white paint, which showed that I'd gone down to the gate and tried to open it. Very ill about this time. Uh, tell me, Mr. Dougal, when did you first begin to sense danger? Investigation was started. Uh, when the superintendent called at the farm, I, I think that's when I began to see danger. I thought it best to leave the farm. Leave it once and forever. <laughs> well, I didn't know where I was going when I left it. Sometimes I didn't seem to care. Care whether they found me. Or whether they didn't find me. Huh. I was so... I was so... I was so tired of it all. And yet the thought of a hand being placed on my shoulder. Oh, I conjectured up all kinds of pictures. I've seen myself tried. I've heard myself sentenced. And I felt myself standing on the scaffold with a rope round my neck. But at times as I sat in my cell, I often thought that after all, I was only living a life of misery. And it'd be better to end it. production of The Moat Farm Murder, a radio documentary by the Mercury's good friend, Mr. Norman Corwin. I was Dougal the Killer, and Mercedes McCambridge was heard as Miss Holland, his hapless victim. We'll be back in just a few seconds to tell you about next week, but first, Jim Amici. Let me again remind you to be patient with your dealer when, occasionally these days, he's unable to supply you with all the paps blue ribbon you'd like. He's doing his best. You can be sure of that. Yes, and here's something else you can be sure of. Every single bottle of Pabst Blue Ribbon you do get will, as always, be the happy blending of never less than 33 fine brews. Yes, every frosty glass you enjoy will, as always, have that famous Pabst Blue Ribbon flavor. Not too heavy, not too light, but fresh, clean, sparkling, with the real beer taste coming through the way you like it. So... Keep asking for blended, splendid, Pabst Blue Ribbon. And now, Mr. Wells. Next Friday night, if you're minded to join us, we're bringing you one of the most heartwarming stories ever written in America. Ring Lardner, the author, is past argument, one of the best of all the writers our country has ever produced. And it's with pride and humility that we... Same time, same station. His 
deathless portrait of an old couple very much in love with each other. Golden honeymoon. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Pabst Blue Ribbon, and for all of us on the Mercury, not accepting the old maestro Bernard Herrmann, who, like the poor, is always with us with his wonderful music, we remain, as always, obediently yours. This program came to you through the courtesy of the Pabst Brewing Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, makers of splendid, splendid Pabst Blue Ribbon. This year, when food shortages threaten starvation to millions, our farmers need all the help they can get to bring in the crops. So, all of you who can work for the remainder of the season should get in touch with your agent or local farm employment office immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That's the show for today. I'll be back soon with more. If you want to hear more from the Mercury Summer Theater, the Mercury Theater, Campbell Playhouse, all types of Orson Welles radio, just visit the website at relicradio.com. You'll also find links there to all the other podcasts, our forum, shoutcast stream, and everything else Relic Radio. If you'd like to help support this and all the shows, you can donate from the website as well. Thanks, as always, to those who have. Thanks for joining me today. Talk again soon with another episode of Orson Welles on the Air. Orson Wells on the Air is produced by and for RelicRadio.com. Rebroadcast of this show without permission is strictly prohibited.